Return with me um, to chapter 3. I'm going to back up uh, to verse 26, read through 29. Uh, Initially, first here rather, Paul's, this section of scripture um, is Paul's declaration concerning the status of the believer uh, because of justification. That's 26 through 29. And then chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, uh, it's Paul's defense of his declaration. Why or how are these things true? Uh, In this section, Paul explains uh, what was true about us before we came to Christ, that's slavery, and what we have become because of Christ, the children of God. And so in, in, in Galatians 26 through 29, Paul declares that we are all sons of God through faith in Christ, that's verse 26. We're all one in Christ, verse 28, and we're all heirs according to the promise, verse 29. But as you know, that wasn't always true. Uh, prior to faith uh, in Christ, we were slaves. Jesus said, anyone who sins, that is the present tense lifestyle of sin, is a slave, a servant of sin. How many of you guys remember being in bondage to sin? Okay, yeah. And he also says that under bondage, chapter 4, verse 3. So I'm going to back up to verse 24 and read through 27. I'm doing that just simply because of context. So read with me. He says, therefore the law was our tutor. And we corrected that word last week. It it ought to be guardian or child custodian. It's not a tutor because uh, this... uh, uh, slave is what he's referring to, was not a teacher, but a custodian. So therefore the law was our guardian uh, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, under the law, because, or for, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So because the law has fulfilled its purpose, by leading the sinner to Christ through justifying, justifying faith, we're no longer under this guardianship. Okay? It's interesting that when you uh, look at you know, coming to age in Jewish culture, uh, you would have a bar mitzvah. And bar mitzvah means you would then, the child would become a son of the law, bar mitzvah. So prior to Christ, the Jew especially was a son of the law, accountable to it, But when he comes to faith in Christ, he's released from the law, and he becomes a son of God, becomes the son of God. That's really sweet, because we know that a son of the law is cursed, according to Paul. He's in bondage. But in Christ, there's this freedom, this freedom. We're no longer under the law's guardianship. And having come to faith and being regenerate by the Holy Spirit, um, that's how we are considered of full age in the faith, and therefore children of God. Now, Paul will explain later that we are sons and daughters through legal adoption. Through legal adoption. Uh, that's chapter 4, verse 5. I don't know how you feel about being adopted, uh, but in a Greek culture, that's, uh, that's a good thing because an adopted son is legally identical to a biological son, to the actual children of the father. Uh, who's the actual child of the Father? Christ. And so through this legal adoption, we have become legally identical in, as far as heirship is concerned with Christ. So how many of you like to be adopted? Okay, I'm, I'm all into it. All right, I'm all into it. 
So when the inheritance, as it were, is divvied out, uh, there is no distinction. Uh, both have equal rights, both are equal heirs. And we're all legal children of God, simply through faith in Christ. But I, I think it, it's important to ask at this point, what, what was the necessity of bringing this declaration at this point in the context of the book of Galatians? Why here it seems like a, a conclusion later on. Okay, well, if you had taken the tongue lashing that the Galatians did up to this point, you'd probably want some relief. Okay, that's, that's what I think, okay? Because remember, the Galatian believers were striving through their obedience to the law in order to become of full age, in order to merit, to earn, to deserve the inheritance as sons and daughters of God. And so Paul is saying to them now, he says, listen, dear brothers and sisters, you are heirs of God, not by keeping the law as these Judaizers has, have duped you into thinking. He's saying there is nothing you can do according to the law that will get you the inheritance. There's nothing. You can only be adopted into this. And that legal transaction has already occurred. You were adopted the moment that you trusted in Christ. Everything you are trying to earn by keeping the law, it's already yours by faith. It's already yours. What are you doing? You're working for something that you already have. That's why initially I called you foolish. That's why I called you bewitched. You have the thing that you're working for. It's already yours by inheritance. And so instead of working for what has already been given, you should just be loving and worshiping the one who gave it. Do you understand? We'll talk about love as the motivator at the end. But their sonship, their daughtership, I know it's not a word, but it is this morning. Okay, I have the microphone, it's a word. So your sonship, your daughtership was paid in full. He says that later, it's redemption. It means to, to, to pay a price with the blood of Christ. And so his sacrifice secured your inheritance. So therefore you belong to God and there's nothing you can do to secure it. And you cannot improve on what has been legally obtained. So thank him for it and celebrate it through worship and devotion. I think that's why Paul makes that declaration now. Uh, they need to have their heads brought up above water for just a, li a little bit. Okay. But of course, Paul's in the zone, so he has, to, he has to push his point further. Paul says, all of this is true, verse 27, because everyone who has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. Now, the baptism that Paul is talking about here is not water baptism, it's spirit baptism. And I know that we have some Pentecostals in the house, and here he's not talking about the baptism which produces you know, the gifts of the spirit. Uh, that's, that's another issue, uh, and we'll get to that another time. But Paul is saying here, he's equating this baptism with the one that secures sonship to the Father, which comes only by faith. And it's a sonship that's a product of regeneration. So this, this can't be water baptism. Uh, this is spirit baptism, where Paul says elsewhere that the Holy once the moment we exercise faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit, he places us into the body of Christ. He brings us into union with Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, he says, for by one spirit, the spirit of God, we were all baptized into one body the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
So through the exercise of faith, the Spirit has united us to Christ by placing us into, or we might say incorporating us into his mystical body. Yeah, that is the church. And then Paul, he expands on this same truth further in Romans 6. He says, therefore, we were buried with Christ through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Because if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, Romans 6, 4 through 6. So at the very most, you know, baptism symbolizes in, you know, in a physical act what occurred spiritually. Okay? Spiritually. Paul says that when we were baptized by the Holy Spirit, we died with Christ and we were buried. How many of you guys need to, needed to spiritually die? I mean, you look at your life before Christ, something needed to die. Okay? And thankfully that through this union with Christ, as if he embraced us with his almighty arms and his grip, and he plunged us into death, the old man needed to die. So Christ died so that we could die. We, we needed to die. But then because Christ rose from the grave with power, the believer being united with him, okay, is also raised spiritually with him so that, as Paul says, we can live a new kind of life. We can live in newness of life, a life that is empowered by the Spirit. So this mystical union with Christ in his death and resurrection, referred to as the baptism of the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit, Paul is saying that this is the means by which we're adopted into the family of God, that we're placed into the body of Christ, that we experience the miracle of regeneration, okay? where all sins are forgiven and we're justified from all sin. How many of you guys seen any works in there? Any obedience to the law? No, it's just by the exercise of faith. Paul also mentions in verse 27 that through this baptism, we've put on Christ. Interesting metaphor uh, used of, you know, uh, putting on a garment, putting on Christ. And, and here it means to put on the character of Christ, his, his virtues, his conduct. Okay? When speaking to the Ephesians, Paul said, he says, put off, put off, just like you take a garment off. He says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off and put on. That's the conversion. Uh, the putting off uh, happened spiritually when we were united to Christ and he plunged us into death. And we put on spiritually Christ when we were raised with him. You remember Paul said earlier in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I die. He died so that I could die. It was necessary. And he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's Christ who now lives in me, through me. It's, it's another way of saying that he's put on Christ. Okay? Christ is the dominating feature of his life. It's talking about being energized by the living, resurrected Christ. So we don't need... 
some external uh, code of ethics if the righteous and holy God is living in us and through us. Okay, Paul's going to argue strongly for that uh, in chapter 5. These things are all realized by a walk of faith. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. Uh, the gospel doesn't just address the spiritual things. It corrects cultural, cultural things. Verse 28, he says, Because of these things there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel confronts everything that God detests. Aren't you glad? It confronts everything, including race, racial issues, social and, and gender, uh, discrimination things. So why address that here in the text? Because the truth is the Jews, uh, they despised the Gentiles. The Jews of the first century, the majority of them, as a product of you know, rabbinical Judaism, they had become um, Jewish supremacists. They thought that they were the supreme race as the children of Abraham uh, and a lot of other things. Um, they considered the Gentiles to be the fuel for hell. That's us. And uh, the Gentiles, they, the, the pagan, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, they looked down at the Jews. So there were some racial issues going on. Uh, the Greeks believed that slaves were a lower class of people. Some even believed that slaves were a lower species created by the gods to serve the higher classes. And that's why a servant should never, ever own property or have slaves. Okay. I think even more disgusting is many Jewish men had little or no respect for women. Josephus even wrote how women are of a lower dignity than men in every way. Some Jewish men prayed, I thank God that he has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Yeah, the human race is a race with many maladies. But in the context of adoption, God doesn't discriminate against any of these things. The only thing that hinders adoption is unrepentance and unbelief. Uh, you know, all of humanity, when we look at it, uh, after you've been exposed to the scriptures long enough, you see equality everywhere. All have fallen short of the glory of God through sin, right? All of us, we're all dead in sins and trespasses apart from him, and therefore we all deserve the wages of sin, which is death, uh, we're all the children of wrath, Paul says, and therefore we all equally need Christ, right? Yeah, and when we come to Christ, no one is saved more than another. Aren't you glad it's not a scale or like, a, like some are here and some are here and some are here? But you have to be honest with yourself. You believe that practically, don't you? Because you look at other people and you say, certainly they're more saved than me. You may not verbalize it that way, but you think that way. But it's not true, you heretic. It's not. It's false teaching. It's a false understanding. No one is justified more than another. And that's impossible because the doctrine of imputation is that all of the righteousness of Christ is transferred to the sinner through faith. All of his righteousness. It's none of your righteousness. There was never such a thing anyway. Amen. But all of Christ's righteousness, Romans chapter 4, is transferred. It's imputed. So no one can have more of the imputed righteousness of Christ than another, even though we think that that's true. And in adoption, no one is loved by God more than another, even though you think that's true. So you're orthodox in your confession 
but you're a heretic in your practice. And it's true of all of us. Okay? It's, it's, it's carnal weakness, by the way. But it is opposed to the truth of the scriptures. It's bad theology to even think that God can love one person more than another. Or to think that God can love you more at one moment and less at another moment. And guys, I, I think I understand theology fairly well, and that is impossible for God. Because for God to exercise less love towards you would require a change in Him. And according to the scriptures, He says, I change not. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So my love is always the same. I can't love you more, I can't love you less. And the scriptures say he has loved you with an everlasting love. That's something. And it was granted to you through faith in Christ. He didn't earn it. Christ earned it for you. Yeah. So no one is qualified or disqualified by race, social status, or gender. We're all one in Christ when it comes to adoption. No one's included or excluded because of those things. God is no respecter of persons. Now, I have to say, because some people want to pull this text out of its context and, and give it a universal application. And then it, it just turns into insanity. Okay, Because uh, if that's the case, it would, I mean, just craziness. I mean, it would be that there are no brown people or white people. Have you noticed that there are brown people? I mean, it was obvious with Aaron and Dama. I mean, the glare off of Aaron was <laughs> stunning. And it would really make me sad because I really love the five brown people that I live with. But the fact that I can see their brown skin and identify their unique features means that race is a reality. And it's a good reality. It demonstrates God's beauty and creativity. And he loves to adopt people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Uh, he makes that distinction, by the way. Nation, tribe, and tongue. And if these distinctions do not exist anywhere, then there are no rich or poor or anyone else in between. But there clearly are. It just makes no difference to God in terms of redemption, except that rich people are, are more difficult to adopt, according to Jesus. But that's no fault of God's. Amen? Also, if these distinctions do not exist, who then is going to be having the babies? Because last time I checked, you have to have specialized plumbing to do that. Okay? There's a difference. So clearly there are boys and girls, Genesis 1.27. There are husbands and wives, Ephesians 5.22 through 27. So always remember, we've said this before, context is king. We must be champions of context. Paul meant what he meant in the context, and it should not be imposed on any other context. Okay. So here at Calvary Chapel, we honor God by loving all people, showing preference to no one, while recognizing and celebrating the distinctions among us unity and diversity, knowing that God adopts all kinds wherever he finds faith and repentance. Amen? Okay. And I'm really glad there are boys and girls. <laughs> Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's a declaration right there. The Judaizers had probably told the Galatians that they needed to keep the law of Moses if they were to enjoy any of the benefits of the blessings of Abraham. But Paul says, no, no. If you've trusted in Christ, you belong to, tr to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. And if you're Abraham's seed, you're an heir according to the promise. 
And all that was promised to Abraham through Christ belongs to the believer by inheritance. You see, the the Galatians needed to hear that sonship to the Father and, and the acquisition of his promises and the justification from sin were through Christ alone. And that their commitment to the law of Moses was worse than worthless. It was a curse. Paul says, cursed is everyone who can does not continue in everything that's written in the law. What a beautiful thing to be redeemed from the law. Okay. Chapter 4, 1 and 2. Now, now I, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Earlier in 324, Paul Uh, used uh, the illustration of the law being like a child custodian whose purpose was to lead the sinner to Christ for justification. But now Paul picks up on a a custom that was specific to Roman culture where a child was under guardians and stewards or trustees until the time appointed by the father. And then at that time, he would be officially adopted by his father at the annual festival of Liberalia on the 7th of March. And at that time, in that culture, the child would be recognized as the father's heir, but not until then. So at that festival, he would be officially adopted by his father, and he would become the heir of all that the father owned. And prior to this festival, the boy was little different than a slave because of his, his low status. Even though in reality, he would one day inherit all that was his father's, including the slaves who watched after him. Very interesting. So verse three, even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. So in like manner to this child, Paul says that when we were children, speaking of our pre-conversion life, he says we were under bondage or in slavery to the elements of the world. How many guys have read that and thought, what in the world are the elements of the world. Oh, it's just me. Just to comfort me, would you raise your hand? Okay, so some of you have tripped up on that. Okay, now many commentators, they get into a tizzy over the meaning of the elements of the world, but I think, as we've said, context is king. We need to go to the immediate context to clarify Paul's meaning, and then I think that his other reference to the elements in Colossians 2 reinforces his meaning. So I'll try not to lose you here in talking about this, so... Please pay attention. Not, not that you weren't before, Gabe. Um, here in verse 3, Paul says that we're in bondage to these elements. And then in verse uh, 4 through 5, he says that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law, saying that being under the law is equal to slavery. That's verse 7. So these elements, he's saying, have something to do with laws. What laws specifically? Well, we look further down, Paul says in verse 9 and 10, He says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And here it is. You observe days, months, and seasons, and years. These elements have everything to do with religious laws and moral principles. Okay, In the context, it's the religious laws and moral principles uh, imposed on the child by the guardians and the trustees. Okay, And uh, the observance of days and months and years is a reference to things in the law of Moses, which the Galatians, remember, they're being sucked into by the Judaizers. 
But back in verse 3, Paul says that everyone, as unconverted people, are in bondage to the elements of the world, both Jewish and pagan. So he's saying every one of us were brought up with religious regulations of some kind, whether they were religious or non-religious, secular or sacred. I love it. Peter talks about the aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers, 1 Peter 1.8. Aimless, he says, aimless conduct that comes out of tradition. Those are elements, things imposed on us. So Paul's saying we were slaves to our former lives. We were under bondage to the way we were shaped outside of Christ. Even culture could be an element of the world. People that think that they're not a product of their own culture are nuts. I'm shocked sometimes when I realize how much of a product of my culture I am. It grieves me, okay, but it's true. We're all a product of it, okay? Verse 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the, the fullness of time, uh, it's, it's like saying at just the right time. Who knew that God would do things just at the right time? Just at the right time, he sent his son into the world. So what was so special about the first quarter of the first century? Let me give you a few things, because I don't want to get distracted with this. It's important, but it's not uh, Paul's main point. In the first quarter of the first century, uh, there was a common language known as Koine Greek. It was spoken by nearly everybody in the empire. This made the message of Christ easy to communicate across the world, from Iraq to Spain, from Europe to North Africa and beyond. Do you think that's a benefit? First time in world history. That's quite the benefit. Then there was the, 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 the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. And so unlike never before, a vast empire had made it relatively safe for people to travel across great distances from one nation to the next, across borders safely, which enabled the safe propagation of the gospel. Also, the Roman roads, which spanned the empire, made it easy to travel from one city to the next to spread the gospel. It was timely of God. He knew right when to send Jesus into the world. Okay? And finally, it was the time that was predicted by the prophets, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, there's more things, but I think that's a good, um, those are the highlights. Moving on. Paul says that God sent his son just at the right time, born of a woman, that's, that's Mary, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now, twice in these verses, Paul uses the term law. Now, this, uh, please pay attention again, okay? There's a change in the Greek text at this point from chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, with reference to the law. Okay, it's very important. You can't see it in the English translation, but it's necessary for interpretation. In chapter 3, Paul would say, the law, and he was referring to the law of Moses, very specifically, because the word law was preceded by the definite article in the Greek, the law. But here in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, Paul drops the definite article in the Greek text, and he just says, law meaning law in general, okay? It's confusing because uh, our English translation says the law every time, okay? But they've only maintained that for smoother English. But it's just not the case in the original. So I want to read it to you without the definite article. 
And that's exactly how the Galatians saw it okay, and understood it. He says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So here in verse 4 and 5, Paul is not referring to the law of Moses, but simply to religious law in general. He's referring back to the elements of the world, okay, which includes Jewish and pagan. Well, this is good because then Christ is not only the Jewish redeemer. Aren't you glad? Yeah. He's the pagan redeemer. He purchases both Jews and Gentiles out of their slavery so that all might receive the adoption as sons and, and, and daughters. I should have just began by saying, when I, when I say the word son, it's just generic. Okay. Sonship, daughtership, sons. Verse 6, and he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. God has sent forth his Spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Because of sonship, daughtership, crying out within us intimately. You know, Paul gives two uh, paternal words at the end of the verse, pater and Abba. Pater and Abba, or Abba and pater. Uh, Pater is Greek, Abba is Aramaic. That's the language of the first century Jew. And I think this is really, it's it's important. Uh, This is the way Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was there weeping and praying before Calvary, Mark 14, 36. And what's happening, I believe, is that as the Spirit of Christ is crying out from within us, it assures us that Jesus' Abba is our Abba. It's true. His daddy is our daddy. He, He hasn't simply become our God, our sovereign ruler. It's not simply our majesty, our king. It's our, our dad, and we're his children. Uh, this kind of fraternal affection makes our adoption so much sweeter. Amen? Yeah. You know, I don't know, you know, some cultures are, are very expressive in their intimacy to one another, but many cultures are not, and these ancient cultures were not. You know, when I was in, in Africa, uh, it, it, and I realize it's cultural, but culture is not always a good thing, uh, especially for the human heart. But the, they don't hold their children's hand when they cross the street or any other place. Uh, they kind of drag them along by the wrist. And, and I, I love holding my children's hand. But I also love that my Abba, my daddy in heaven, loves to hold my hand as it were because it's affectionate, it's intimate. Okay? He's not a, a sovereign dictator, he's my father. He's adopted me and he's treating me as the intimate ones in his family. That's the adoption of scripture. That's what's happening when the spirit of Christ cries out within us, Abba, Father. He says, you are no longer a slave, because slaves got no affection, amen? There was no intimacy there. He says, but you're a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But as it was for the Galatians, it's for many of us, the temptation is to think that we've come into the family of God as a second-class child or as a slave with privileges. So like the Galatians, we adopt rules and regulations that make us feel more worthy, that make us feel like we actually do belong here. No, I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl. I've done my part. I've done my thing. So I deserve 
the affection that I get. No, you don't. It was won for you by Christ. Paul's reminding us of these two things, that just as he is Jesus' Abba, he is our Abba. Just as Jesus is the Father's heir, we are heirs of the Father. And all of this is through Christ. All of it was secured for us, not partially, but completely. We're not becoming heirs or earning it through our obedience to any set of religious rules. Jesus has fully redeemed us. We've been fully and legally adopted in heaven. So there's no degrees among the heirs. No adopted child is favored above another. He's our daddy. He loves us, scripture says, with an everlasting love. So the Judaizers had it wrong, and the Galatians were trying to become something that they already were by all the wrong means, keeping the law of Moses in order to become children of God, to become heirs of God, to be well-pleasing to God, to be redeemed. But as we've already looked at, God meant for the law of Moses to accuse, to condemn, and to curse. It was meant to curse you all the way to Calvary so that you would be justified by faith. It wasn't a means for justification. I think plenty of us here are doing the same. Maybe you have it all backwards like the Galatians did, thinking that the various things of God are acquired by your progressive obedience to something, to some element. But it's all secured. It's all granted through faith. There's no way to earn it. So if you're being obedient to get God to love you or to uh, release these redemptive truths to you, you're just mistaken. Because obedience to Christ arises out of a love for Christ not, not from a motivation to get things from him or to be acceptable to him. If you're trying to win God's favor by performance, you've misunderstood God and the scriptures. Love for God is the supreme motive. And that's why God says, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, because he knows what will flow out of that. Okay? It's not a question of whether or not God loves and enjoys the believer. It's a question of whether or not you love God and enjoy him, enjoying him. As soon as you do, you will conduct yourself with God as you do other things that you love and enjoy. You know, if you love certain activity, you will give yourself to that activity. You'll make sacrifices for it. You'll make time for it. You'll spend money on it. Can't wait to get to it. Perhaps daydream about it and tell others about it. That's the natural response to the things we love. Understand the same is true for God. Listen, God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. What was the supreme motivator? Love. It motivated him to make sacrifices for us. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey me. It's a statement of fact. It's not a command. Love me and obey me. No, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will obey me. It's a statement of fact. Not to get something from him, but to show love and appreciation for him. Now, these facts, this Supreme motivation. It's all going to become more evident as we uh, go through Paul's letter. And there's only one fruit of the Spirit. It's called love. And love is manifested in all of those other beautiful things. Okay. I can't wait to get there, but I, I still need to make Paul's argument. Next week, we'll continue on in chapter uh, 4. Uh, and then I'm going, to, uh, do, I'm going to do a whole slide presentation on the covenants. And then we'll go into Paul's um, allegory of the covenants, which is very fun. Uh, so anyway, uh, go ahead and stand up. I'll get you out of here. Look forward to seeing some of you at the Meet the Pastor and Elders and Pizza. But not everybody. But not everybody.
You guys suffered long with me today. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, I, I just pray that according to the scriptures here, that, I mean, we have the, the biblical, logical, theological argument for all of these things, for the termination of the law, for the adoption of sons, heirs together with Christ, all this stuff. But Lord, some people have not embraced it and experienced it by faith. But as Paul says, to know the love of God, and then for that to spring up in us as a motivation to love, appreciate, and worship you, Lord, is so liberating. I pray, Lord, that you would deliver some of us from the drudgery of what it is to be in the faith. There really is none. It's all a human production of the flesh. And I I would just pray that they would experience you in such a way that it would deliver them from that so that they would know that you are their daddy, that you have fully adopted them, that you love them with an everlasting love. And then, Lord, as the Spirit of God dwells in them, that it would motivate them to love you, to serve you, to enjoy you, Lord. Because you are enjoyable, as David said, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So help, help us to experience that, Lord. And uh, So, Lord, I thank you for my church family. I pray that the word of God would become a living reality to them. So bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.